the world, it's on fire and it's flooding. Climate change is just gonna ruin everything. Every corner of the country is being impacted by climate change. Phoenix is the worst place to live on earth because most of the time you get to the hot weather season and if my air conditioning fails, everyone in the house dies. And yet it's also one of the biggest booming real estate markets in the country. Mother Nature is always thinking about future generations. She's not worried about the right now. She's worried about the future. And that's why Mother Nature always wins. So I put this question to this government official. I was like, what are you guys gonna do with the impending apocalypse? All of your people are gonna die. And the official just sort of looked at me and said, oh no, we'll be fine. We'll just adapt. <laughs> I spent most of my life in Tucson, Arizona. I went to the University of Arizona, got my journalism degree there. It always blew my mind that so many people were living in this place where something like water was a legitimate concern. You know, like the availability of water has always been a perennial concern there. We're doomed. <laughs> <sighs> Hi, everyone. I gotta tell you, maybe you haven't seen the news lately, but the world, it's on fire and it's flooding. It's flooding and it's on fire and we're running out of food and the salt is, there's too much salt in the ground and climate change is just gonna ruin everything. And that's what we're here to talk about today. You know, maybe, maybe the, here's, the, here's the idea. Yeah, so things are really bad in the climate, but maybe, maybe if we just got like some cool tech fix, right? Maybe if, if we, we created the right satellite protocols, the right seawalls to keep the sea at bay, Maybe we can forestall the problems of climate change. Maybe we can inject the atmosphere with so much sulfur dioxide that the, the sky turns yellow. But by making the sky yellow, we will survive by cooling, that will cool the earth just enough that we will make it out of here alive. What do you guys think? You think we can do that? All right, well, I am not an expert geoengineer. I am not somebody who understands all of the science, but one of the things that's beautiful about having this job and this podcast is I get it to reach out to awesome experts all over the world uh, who, who can give me some insight into what our climate change future might be. And I'm talking today to Stephen Miller. He, you, you know his byline from Discover Magazine, Washington Post, a, a magazine called National Geographic. Uh, I know him personally because we both had this environmental journalism fellowship over at CU Boulder uh, in different years, but you know, there's a community of us environmental journalists out there. And we've both written a, a little bit about Bangladesh over the years. He is the author of this book called Over the Seawall, which is about well, the, its subtitle is Tsunami, Cyclones, Drought, and the Delusion of Controlling Nature, because Stephen Miller has looked into a lot of the, the plans that we've had over the ages to control the, the, the cataclysms that nature can offer up. And he wrote a really good book about it. It just came out with Island Press uh, this last month. And I want to start by, in his introduction, he talks about this city of ease, which is just spelled Y-S. What happened at Ease? Where, what, what was that city? Hi, Scott. Um, yeah, Ease was a town or village, a city, I guess, way back when. Um, located on the coast, I think it's kind of it's a bit of mythology around this city. However, I'm pretty sure it existed. Um, I think it existed on the coast of France. 
And the reason we think that actually there are fishermen who have said they have seen things down in the water that look like maybe the remnants of an old city. And so it's a good chance this thing was real. But the story of Ease is a great story of trying to engineer the coastline and kind of the problems with that. So the story is that there's this king, right? This king has this daughter. His daughter is this horrible degenerate of a person and all she cares about is love and money and whatever else. Um, at one point, her daughter, the king builds this, this wall around his, around his city to keep out the ocean so that it won't flood. The wall has one gate, okay? The gate is designed so that when it rains up on the land, they can open the gate and all the water will flush back out into the ocean. That gate has one key and the king holds onto that key. Well, this, uh, this suitor comes down and some, some say this guy is like a demon who comes from the deep, right? And he comes to lure this woman, the, the king's daughter. Uh, into his clutches. And she goes in the middle of the night and she steals the king's key so she can go unlock the gate and let this guy inside the walls. The problem was she does that at the time when, uh, at the high tide. And so at the moment she opens the gate to the sea, the water floods in and destroys the town. Uh, and it's this horrible story of like years and years of people trying to protect themselves from the ocean. And ultimately this one decision, the whole thing kind of falls to pieces and she floods the town and in a fit of lust, essentially is what happened. What is, so that sounds like a parable about why women are awful, is, is it, is it, it, <laughs> which, which I don't think is the takeaway we're going for here. No, not quite. Um, <laughs> not this but, time. But what we're saying here is, is, is where does this, this parable come from originally? Um, from what I, my understanding, there's been many iterations of it over time. My understanding is that, you know, it originates in the medieval ages uh, in Europe. But um, I'll have to check on that because I don't have it right in front of me right now. So, but the idea here is that humans are in a constant battle against nature. You, you build your city close to the water because, hey, it's great to be close to the water, fishing, ports, trade, all that stuff. But the consequences of building so close to the water is that sometimes your city can be destroyed by a violent high tide or ocean. This seems to be a pattern in the world to some degree. What, what other cities throughout history have tried to control nature and failed? Well, I mean, I guess the, the, the question there, I think, is most fascinating. is how, how do you define failure, right? Because, I mean, a lot of these cities still exist. And they might, I mean, Yeez is an example of a city that completely, totally failed, right? Because it no longer exists. Um, and the thing that fascinates me about Yeez the most is that they had this wall. This wall had to have been multiple iterations, right? This wasn't the first wall they built. What I say in the book is they likely also, you know, you put a gate on the wall, which means they probably at some point built a wall with no gate. And then they put a lock on that gate. And that, so that tells me that sometime in, along in history, they probably had a gate with no lock. And these are like, so to me, it's like they've been doing this for generations, trying to figure out a way to protect themselves from the sea. Then ultimately it does fail. Like the, she lets in the water and the whole town has disappeared. But, you know, I think more often what we come across throughout history are examples of cities along the coast. I mean, whether it's like cities along the Thames or cities, you know, communities in New Zealand or you know, Pacific Island communities, or even Miami, you know, where people have been locked in this unending struggle against the ocean or against their environment. And it doesn't always end in like this, just like Pompeii style, you know, failure, obliteration, you know, but it's sometimes it's just like this slow, ongoing struggle where people are just, you know, um, succumbing one by one over a long period of time, maybe. You know, if you talk about that city ease, one of the things that, that in the parable, there's two things going on. One, we have the sea. One, we have this woman uh, uh, that may or may not have stolen a key. Is it really a parable about the failure 
of um, technology or is it a failure of human administration of that technology? Only one key. <laughs> Yeah, Why don't we have yeah. a better administrative core to 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 deal with this? Is it possible to save your to to actually responsibly fight the perils of nature, or is it something that is is futile? Yeah, that's that's what I'm getting to in the book, right? Is like. Why build the wall in the first place? Well, why put yourself in a position why, where you even need to build the wall and then create this whole other system of trying to maintain the integrity of the wall and protect it from being opened and hiding the key away and all these things. It's like, this is the way these bad decisions uh, kind of snowball. You know, it starts off with one thing, but then it just kind of, it gets worse and worse. And every decision along the way puts you in the position where you have to make an even worse decision down the road. And that's, you know, the book obviously is about preparing for natural disasters and particularly looking at how we're going to res respond to climate change. And, and that's the argument that I'm making is the decisions that we make today, these, these bad decisions, these bad adaptations, as I call them, um, you know, they, they, they're going to put us in a position down the road where we have even fewer and worse decisions, options, you know, to make then. So what is the, you know, status quo, the way we're moving right now, what is the future of climate change and human so you could say survival or human adaptation. What does the future like look like where we're going right now? Yeah, honestly, I'm not sure. I think there's there are so many possibilities right now. I mean, on the one hand, my, my inclination is to say we are we are foobar. You know, like mm -hmm. we have you know just just recently you see um, I think it was a study just in the last week or so about how you know scientists are now saying it's like well we all knew those of us have been paying attention. We all knew that we are not going to avert, you know, we're not going to miss that 1.5 C uh, level of warming. Like we're going to warm beyond that mm -hmm. point now. Like a long time, people have been saying, if we can just avoid that mark, we're going to be okay. We're going to make it work. But that's not going to happen. Scientists are saying we're, that, you know, the, the warming at that level is already baked into our system. At the same time, they're seeing some reports saying that, you know, global CO2 levels are starting to level off. Um, and certainly in the U.S., they have been kind of leveling off. Now, that's that to me, I find unlikely in the long term. We start looking at what China and India are, are doing all over the country and building huge uh, coal fire power yeah. plants um, right now. It's in, in places where people are really seeing these huge, like the immediate impacts of, of climate change, sea level rise and cyclones and things. And so, I, you know, that's why I say I could see it going in a lot of different directions. But I mean, the reason I wrote the book is because ultimately I see the troubles that we've been dealing with every year, you know, just getting worse and worse. We're talking about flooding in the Mississippi, all in the Midwest. We're talking about fires in the West. We're talking about sea level rise and, and more intense hurricanes here, cyclones over there, um, droughts. It's just like, just it, all these things just getting worse and worse. And so that puts us in this position of recognizing like, Oh, we have to, we have to do something about this and we got to do something right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean yeah, we're going to stop it because we're obviously not going to stop it, right? Because our leaders are not doing anything to stop it. They are, mm -hmm. um, but we're gonna, what they are going to do is spend a whole lot of money trying to make it a little bit easier to live in this environment. Right. Well, and the climate has been changing. You know, humans have adapted to climate change in various ways and various weather patterns. You know, there's a number of cities, for instance, Harappa in in uh, the Indus Valley, right? The river moved and the civilization disappeared, right? Uh, and yet humanity did survive. That city didn't do too well. How do you think, let, let's actually go into, into a, a place that I know a lot about, and I know that you spent time there as well, um, Bangladesh, right? 
that country in my book, The Vortex, right? I, I talked about the origin of Bangladesh, which started with a cyclone, a cyclone that killed half a million people and triggered a revolution, a war, flipped an election, and almost brought the, the United States and the USSR into nuclear conflict. Um, it was only averted because of a couple scrappy uh, revolutionaries managed to take Dhaka before uh, the, the the button was pushed on the USS Enterprise that was in the Bay of Bengal at the time. That's mm. the, the short of, of my book, The Vortex. It's interesting because when I went to Bangladesh and I, I spoke to a number of climate experts there, uh, including sort of the, the, the top government officials in charge of adaptation uh, along the coastline. The, one of the problems with Bangladesh is it's so low lying that that as the, the sea level rises, all of the water, get, all of the farmland gets desalinized. And when cyclones do hit, a lot of people die. And so I put this question to this government official. I was like, what are you guys going to do with the impending apocalypse, <laughs> right? With the with all of your people going to die. And meanwhile, India has built a wall around Bangladesh so that refugees can't flood in. It's a powder keg. And the official just sort of looked at me and said, oh, no, we'll be fine. We'll just adapt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you say to that? Oh, I think the same thing is happening in the U.S. I mean, like we kind of talk. It's easy to talk about Bangladesh; it's so far away, and it feels so different. But I mean, I think this, this is, as a quick aside, I do think that people living in California on the on the edge of you know fire prone, fire adapted forests are kind of mm -hmm. coming at this from the same mindset of like, well, we'll just we'll just adapt. Somebody will come along with a new tin roof or something. But anyway, mm -hmm. you know, the thing about Bangladesh is they have been adapting in their own way for for a really long time. Um, and over the seawall, I talk about the centuries of colonialism that have tried to remake the Ganges River Delta, right? Is this is the largest delta, river delta in the world. It's an incredibly dramatic place um, in terms of there's something. I've seen different estimates on this. And the, just the fact that there are so many different numbers tells you a lot, I think. The number of rivers in the, that run through the delta, I've seen it estimated as 230 or 900. And so it's like, yeah, depending, I've, seen, I've seen a thousand they've, said they've talked, but who knows? Yeah, just but the way it, they, they move the and they change. It's a delta, right? And that's the thing. And it's a delta that's mud. It's built up of silt and mud. Uh, that's about, I think it goes about 12 kilometers deep before you hit any kind of rock. So this is just mud. You imagine like shooting a hose into the dirt in your backyard and the way the dirt crumbles and creates new waterways. And that's what's happening there. And here you have this 170 million people living in an area about the size of Iowa. Um, with the, this incredible, incredibly dynamic, volatile river system. And then, of course, in a place on the edge of a bay that's, that's prone to huge cyclones and massive storms that are just seems to be getting worse and worse. But so I talk about, you know, the attempt to control this environment, the book, right, the delusion of controlling nature, because for centuries, people like the, the Muslim Mughals, then down the line, the, the East Indies Company, the British, and really did most of the damage. And then into the 1950s, and you start to look at uh, uh, envoys from the U.S. come over and try to find ways of how are we going to solve the plight of the Bangladeshi people? They need mm -hmm. to find a way to engineer their deltas so that these poor people can, can, can survive the floods and make enough food. And this has always been done with this kind of Western mindset of like, well, we'll just control the rivers. You know, we'll build embankments along the rivers. It's the same story that happened in the Mississippi Delta. We're going to build embankments and levees along the rivers to, to keep the rivers in place. That means the rivers won't flood, which would be great. And we'll have, we'll create more farmland on the side of them, which means we can, we can farm more food for more people. And then, you know, Bangladesh at this time in the mid, mid 20th century is dealing with horrific famine. Um, 
and then of course you know you've also got irrigation works and so if we control the rivers and we can we can build uh western style irrigation infrastructure to pull water out when we want it all sounds wonderful and in some parts of the world it actually has worked um but not bangladesh and they tried to do it over and over and over again there and one of the people i talked to in the book a professor by the name of dilip data at kulna university which is down there in the thick of this mess you know he told me he was talking to me in his office and he's saying something like it's uh, it's the definition of uh what is it called? We call it like Poggle in, in Bangla. It's madness. That's right. It's madness to try to, to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result. Mm-hmm. And that's what they've been trying to do there. The result has happened rather than controlling the rivers and keeping them in their place and creating farmland and all that. The result that's happened is the rivers are filled with sediment. All that sediment that washes out of the Himalaya mountains and upstream in India and everything, all of that gets filled in the river. The river level rises. Meanwhile, that sediment used to deposit across the plain and build that that 12 kilometers of mud used to build that up. Now that doesn't get built up anymore. So you have the river level rising and the ground level dropping because it's compacting. And so when these floods do happen, they're that much worse. It's it's orders of magnitude worse. That's terrible. Um, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and, it's terrible. And, and and so what is the 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 takeaway from this parable, right? You know, we try, we try to fix nature. We try to control nature and then things, it turns out that our efforts to fix this, these technological fable that we tell, if we do one thing, we put a hydroelectric dam here, uh, you'll get electricity forever and there'll be no downsides. But it seems like technology often, it, it has these benefits and these costs that come with it. And and how do we resolve that? And are we ever going to resolve that? And or are you just telling Bangladeshis you guys should move? No. Well, I've heard Bangladeshis tell Bangladeshi that they should move, and that's one of Dilip Data. He's hey, at one point we got in this conversation, and it was kind of intense. Honestly, it was like it was a, it was such a cynical perspective that as he was telling me this, I was got a little bit uncomfortable, you know, because he said, "I'm not even kidding." He says to me, "You know." A cyclone Sitter and Isla, which killed lots of people and destroyed, you know, homes and farmland, really terrible impacts. He says these cyclones, he says they were doing, he didn't, I'm, gonna, I'm paraphrasing this, you know, pretty grossly, but he said they did something good. He said they, they did what Mother Nature is doing. They took the, they took the coast back for Mother Nature. He said Mother Nature is always thinking about future generations. She's not worried about the right now. She's worried about the future. And that's why Mother Nature always wins. And so the kind of, I think what he was getting at was, you know, this land and especially along the coast here, uh, historically was not a very populated part of the country or the world. Now it's heavily, one of the most densely populated places on the planet. Um, And that's not necessarily a great thing, you know, and and he was kind of making this argument. I think the point there, and it applies all over the world, right? There are some places where we're going to be just hit and hit, and it's going to be so difficult to try to live there that, you know, we have two options. We can either do what they did in the ease, right, and continue to build up walls, more walls, bigger walls, gates in the walls, the gate, locks in the walls, the locks in the gates, all that. Or, um, you know, maybe we can rethink, totally rethink the way we live or also rethink where we live, you know, because there is something to be said for choosing. I think that's an incredibly form of adaptation is choosing where we decide to put our investment. Yeah, it, it, but when you think about the what the political costs of moving millions of people are, I mean, for instance, you know, one of the things that I worry about climate change mostly, like the real danger of climate change in my mind, is not where populations are going to be or desalinization or even the, the the immediate disasters that may may occur. I mean, you know, the Bola cyclone killed half a million people. There was a cyclone a hundred years before that that killed three hundred thousand people, all in that in that same region. Um, but even those deaths 
are not necessarily the problem. It's actually the human fallout from this is that, you know, currently Bangladesh is ringed by a wall that's armed by guards and uh, on the India side who, when this happens, they're going to start firing. And when they start firing, Bangladesh's military is going to respond. And then Bangladesh has allies, or I guess, actually, I'm not sure if Bangladesh has allies anymore, but they used to have allies, right? And and you could see a conflagration of violence yeah. where, where the storm doesn't only land on landscapes, it lands on political systems. Um, yeah, you know, absolutely. you also mentioned how these islands are always shifting uh, in... Uh, and again, I'm sorry, listeners, if you have to listen to us nerd out about Bangladesh for a moment, but go with me for a second. Um, maybe you've heard of the Rohingya, who are a a, oh. um, a, 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 a minority group uh, from uh, neighboring Myanmar, who are now being put on some of these islands uh, uh, that are constantly shifting. And there's there's whole refugee camps on these islands that they know are going to disappear. And should a storm come, you're going to have 100,000 people die. These are the things that actually truly scare me about, about what will happen. Because on one hand, as you point out in your book, we have these ideas of technological fixes. Like if we do this one thing, if we burn the sky, if we build a seawall, if we um, I don't know, engineer a better tree that's not flammable, I don't know what you do with a forest <laughs> fire. Um, yeah. If you do the, this thing, then we won't have consequences. But I think what what's so brilliant about the way you approach this question is that there's always consequences. How right. do we avoid consequences? Moving a million people or 10 million or 50 million people out of the, the Ganga River Delta is, you know, we don't have political systems robust enough to deal with a 50 million um, person refugee movement. No, absolutely not. I mean, that's why, you know, so the book is about this thing called maladaptation. Researchers call it maladaptation, which to me is a bit of a wonky. So throughout the book, I use bad adaptation. I don't even know if that much better of a term, but whatever. Um, yeah, and the idea, like we said before, about how Yeez wasn't an utter failure. I mean, these technological fixes, sometimes they're not, they're not just utter failures. Sometimes the dam holds. You know, sometimes the levees actually do create farmland and, and stop some floods. But that doesn't mean, like you're saying, that doesn't mean they don't have consequences. So, you know, maladaptation is all about the downstream impacts of some of these are these adaptations that we make in order to, to, to protect ourselves. Um, and they come in different forms. I mean, sometimes it's like a downstream impact on someone just down literally down the coast. So like in the upstate, upstate uh, California and actually all along the coast in California, you're seeing wealthy communities building seawalls behind their developments, right? Because they have the money mm -hmm. to do that. The thing about a seawall is like it doesn't absorb the energy of the, of the waves in the ocean. And like the law of physics says that energy has to go somewhere. Right. And so the, that energy is dissipated. It's, it's, or it's sent out in different directions and it's often sent out on the communities that don't have the money to build seawalls. So now their coastline is changing or their, their homes are being washed away. Mm -hmm. Sometimes this, this maladaptation affects people downstream in time, you know, like, so like a generations down the line. Um, instead of right here. Sometimes it means that it increases greenhouse gas emissions in the case of desalination through water, right? Like the amount of energy required to desalinate water to create drinking water in the desert um, is just, as long as you're fueling those desalination plants with fossil fuels, you know, you're powering it with fossil fuels, you're ultimately creating more greenhouse gas emissions and adding to the very problem you're trying to protect yourselves from. Uh, then the big thing, you know, is the way it this technological lock-in. Once you build a dam or a, sea, or a canal or a desal plant or levee system, you're kind of you're stuck with that hard infrastructure on the landscape for the life of that infrastructure, which in some cases is 50, 100 or, you know, centuries long. 
and every decision you make, and you're talking about political and you know uh, technology, technology-wise, even cultural, it kind of comes back to this thing. Mm-hmm. When I was reporting this book, I think the biggest kind of impact, the, the consequence of these these bad adaptations was just the false sense of security that they give us. Like they make us right. feel like we're going to be safe behind this wall, safe on this floodplain, safe in this desert, and um, that's not often the case. And now a word from our sponsors, by which I mean you. Thank you for being here. And I wanted to say, if you really like the stuff that I do, it would be great if you could support the show on Patreon, where you'll get early access to new videos and a lively community talking about, well, the weird things that I talk about on this channel. It would mean a lot for me if you could check out uh, the link down below and, you know, see if this is right for you. But if it doesn't, you know what really also helps me? If you like and subscribe and hit that bell icon, the algorithm really, really cares, and it gives a massive boost to let my channel spread all over the internet. And without further ado, back to the video. Yeah, let's talk about deserts for a moment, because you spent also a lot of time in Arizona, which, you know, I, I'm just going to go on the record here and say Phoenix is the worst place to live on Earth. Uh, and, you know, that may not totally jive with all of the facts, but, you know, my sister used to live in the suburb of Chandler, and I would look in the middle of August at what the temperature was in Chandler, and it, it was hitting 120 far too frequently, like oh, yeah. weeks over over 110, where, where uh, you know, life, as I know it, does not thrive. How does, and yet it's also one of the biggest booming real estate markets in the country, right? right. It, uh, it's easy to buy land there, I guess, or was until recently. People are flooding in there, which is a funny term. Uh, and, <laughs> and, 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 and what is the future of this American metropolis? That is an excellent question. I'm, I, I wonder if I'll live long enough to see it, the future of it. And I think I might, because it seems that precarious to me that it might actually happen within my lifetime. But I grew up in Tucson. I spent, I spent most of my life in Tucson, Arizona. I went to the University of Arizona, got my journalism degree there. I spent my whole life wondering, like, what the hell is going on here? What is wrong with these people? Like, why, why, is so, why are so many of us, myself included, my family, moving into the middle of the desert? Because I actually moved there from uh, Pennsylvania. I was born in Pittsburgh. Mm. And so my family moved out there and I was among the, those people who were doing that. I mean, my dad, you know, moved the family for work and that's what happens, right? You move out there either for the, the cheap cost of living. It was a lot cheaper. Now there's a housing crisis and the housing has gotten expensive, but it used to be dirt cheap to live out there. And taxes have always been comically low, unless you're the kind of person who needs, I don't know, any kind of social services that would be funded by taxes or a kid mm-hmm. in a school in one of the most, the least funded school systems in the country. Um, but it always blew my mind that so many people were living in this place where something like water was a legitimate concern. You know, like the availability of water has always been a perennial concern there. Um, you mentioned Chandler. You know, my book, I, I spent a lot of time with the farmers in, in Arizona because, uh, you know, the agriculture farmers, they're the ones all around the world, right, who are seeing the impacts of climate change the most obvious, most obviously, right? They're, they're the ones out there on the land, um, you know, depending on the water source and all that. So, Chandler used to be, you know, a big farm town. That was what it was there. People growing mostly hay uh, back in the days before a lot of cars, the hay was like the diesel. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of alfalfa and hay being grown uh, and also cotton. And some of the farmers that I talked to 
had grown up in Chandler back when it was a farming town. And now it, you know, was a, it's, it's become a, a big development. Like all of the Phoenix sprawl. Is. It's like a big outdoor mall, basically like that. Chandler absolutely. is the whole it, place. Like is, all, yeah. And it, it's a terrible place to live. As far as I can tell, because most of the time you get to the hot weather season and it, it, winters are nice. Like December is great, but the hot weather seasons, you're like, Oh my God, I can't leave my house for like four months out of the year. And if my air conditioning fails, everyone in the house dies. Oh my God. Um, the number of deaths there have been continuously rising. This is something that I feel like it's you're talked about in the local media quite a bit. I think the national media is coming alive to this, or, you know, or becoming wise to it, but it's, there's hundreds of deaths because of, uh, I want to say, don't quote me, but I believe I just was working on this recently. Something around 450 deaths last year related to heat uh, in the Phoenix, in Maricopa County, in the Phoenix area. Most of those, are, a good portion of those, are people who live on the streets. Um, another good portion are people whose air conditioning, air conditioners fail in their homes. A lot of them live in mobile homes. And think about Arizona, right? It's a mecca for uh, older people who are looking to retire somewhere cheap where that wasn't going to snow on them. And a lot of people bought mobile homes and lived in mobile home communities because they're, they're nice, they're easy to manage, and they're mm-hmm. got close neighbors. It's, it's a great setup until, you know, they're not very well insulated. Sometimes electricity is kind of bad in those things, and um, their conditioning dies, and then they die. And it's, it's tragic what's happening. But all of this gets brushed under the rug of development, the, just the drive to keep building more houses and and bringing more more data centers for Facebook and Google, and just to bring keep bringing more people into this area. And what are they doing in in Arizona right now? To what's their technological fix? What's the positive spin? What are they telling people? Is like, no, you ain't gonna run out of water because we have the solution. Or, what what are they saying? The answer there is, I think. So there's there's several things. I mean, the the first one is that we'll get it from the farmers, right? So we don't have to, people in cities don't have to worry about the future of water in Arizona because there's so much water in ag, Uh, you know, and that's true. Something like 75 to 80% of the water in the Colorado River system, right? Central Arizona, despite being hundreds of miles from the Colorado River, depends on the Colorado River. That's what the, you know, that's what that section of my book is all about that, the decision to do that. Um, But uh, yeah, so like 75% of the region's water goes to agriculture. As farming is kind of drying up, um, and as the shortages in the river are happening, they're taking some of the water from farmers where they can do that legally, and those shifted over to get to the cities. There's so much water in agriculture that the reality is that if you were to get rid of all the farms, the cities could go along for quite some time with that water. Now, hey, that, could that's they- great. So, so we're just changing our crops, right? We're changing the crop from growing alfalfa to growing subdivisions. Absolutely. Is it going to yeah. work? Is it going to work? I mean, I guess it depends on whether you want to eat or not. You know, like, I mean, people argue farmers in Arizona don't grow a lot of food. That's absolutely true. There's, they do grow a lot of food, but they also grow a lot of hay, which goes to fatten cows. And a lot of people in this country like to eat meat. Um, there's also the argument that a significant portion of the, of the uh, hay that's grown in Arizona is sent overseas to Saudi Arabia, Japan. Um, and that's absolutely true. Uh, I talked to farmers there about that, you know, a lot of people, locals in Arizona, really cry about that and say, like, you're basically just shipping our water. We're living in the middle of a desert with dwindling water resources, and you are basically shipping our water overseas. Mm-hmm. Well, the farmers will say, yeah, because Saudi Arabians buy cheap hay for a good price, and that price is steady every time I sell it to them. You know, they don't mm-hmm. they don't raise the price. Like the American market fluctuates. Sometimes farmers make a good amount of money, but if oats are doing well one year, then the, then the hay price comes down or something. So it's mm-hmm. these, you know. 
it's the the American ag market is very volatile, whereas they can ship their stuff overseas and get it in a set rate for it. The thing is, these farmers are locked into paying off a debt for this big canal that the Central Arizona project that brought water from the Colorado River to the center of the state. The farmers are locked into paying a debt for that canal. This is their adaptation, or as I call it, this bad adaptation. And because they have this debt, they have to sell crops. They have to sell those crops at a high value. And so they're incentivized to grow whatever they can. So they're not just going to switch over tomorrow to some miracle, you know, drought proof grain or something like Kernza or whatever, right? They're going to grow whatever the market is going to pay them to grow. And that's mm-hmm. in large part because of because of this adaptation that they've, they've bought into that they have to pay for now. So that's the downstream consequence of, of a canal that bring, brings Colorado River water 350 miles from, from the border to uh, Phoenix. Well, that's interesting. In, in a way, you've made me feel like better about the future of Arizona than I than I had thought, which is not the way I thought I'd come out of uh, out of um, what you just said. Because it does seem like, well, if you just change some of your ideas about what Arizona can do and can provide, then Arizona will be actually better. Because the, the issues there are drought. It's not destruction of things, unlike a place like. Canada, like in the last year, for instance, I mean, there was this great book by John Valiant. I don't know if you saw it. It's called Fire Weather, mm, um, which nice. is about the largest fire in um, uh, Canada. I almost call it Canada in Canada's history, <laughs> um, which is, of course, we have these. It, it's basically all pine trees up there. Right. And and it's getting hotter. It's getting drier. And an entire town burned down. Uh, uh, you know, major, major mining town burned down. Uh, I think it was in, uh, eight years ago or so. Uh, we've also seen here, you know, you and I both live in Colorado. We had Broomfield burned down, uh, yeah. what, three years ago. Uh, we're seeing a myriad of impacts from, from climate change that are coming at us from uh, multiple different directions. And and what do you think about maladaptations? Are we ever going to get around them? I mean, that's the point of my book. I'm hoping that it'll jar people's thinking. People ask me, as I was writing this book, there was you know so many people, my editor included, who said, you know, so what's the solution? What's the solution, Stephen? Yeah, that's what I'm getting at here. Yeah, so everybody wants to know, what's the solution? <laughs> tell us what to do. Just please tell us what to do. Um, that's and my book is saying like no i'm not going to tell you what to do i'm going to tell you what not to do because i think the problem is that we keep looking for these solutions that we get blinders on and we just think we find something that kind of works and we think cool let's do that quick let's dump a billion dollars into this desal plant or let's let's mm-hmm. build up a oh the friggin wall fell down we'll just build we'll build a taller one here you know mm-hmm. um we get locked into that thinking of like what's the solution and so and what i'm arguing is that climate adaptation is not a solution it's a practice it's something that you're going to do forever because we've baked it in now like every generation is going to have to do it we have to make it's going to be a, a series of decisions that are all changing over time we're going to have to we're going to need to be malleable and flexible when the when a, you know when maybe maybe Arizona suddenly sees like a ton of water like maybe that's the problem that we don't even know is going to happen there's so many uncertainties around climate change right like you might find like California is, is going now, it's caught in this whiplash of like drought, fire, and then flood, you know, drought, flood for like, that's every year now there. How do you prepare for that? If you're just, if you're depending on a solution that's going to solve this problem, maybe it solves the drought problem. It doesn't solve the, the, uh, the flood problem. Um, mm-hmm. So what we need are solution 
I think, is you know flexible, malleable decisions, um, systems that react to, to changing baselines, different ways of thinking. So, I mean, Arizona, the, the most obvious thing we could do, you know, is to stop building sprawl. Like sprawling out into the desert is without a doubt the least sustainable way to be building. Um, we need, if we're going to keep living there, that place needs to be tightened up. That's just, that's just a reality. Um, and good. Yeah. Stephen, that, that it, it, I like what you're saying, but I wanted the solution. Book yeah, everybody wants us. Be, be, because, because what you're saying makes a lot of sense. Like it's really, really hard. The th- the problem with climate change is that it's such a, the entire globe is heating up and causing a million small little problems all at once. And, and they add up to enormous environmental human and otherwise fallout. And it, it strikes me that we're not very good at a million smart changes, right? That's not what, that's not what humans do well anymore. Um, And when you don't do that, you're, you're going to reap, I, I, some consequences, right? When you trust, try to keep doing the big one quick fix, you're going to, you're going to do consequences, which is what you're, you know, obviously cautioning against, but how do, in hell do you convince millions of people to properly uh, advocate their government for the right local solutions that somehow add up to the major problem? My fear is, I'm not even sure it's a fear. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say it's basically uh, like a prophecy. Or, or a foretelling. Like my, my understanding of how the future is definitely going to unfold right now is that we have a major global problem, which is climate change, which is being triggered by uh, the, essentially the greenhouse effect. Too much energy coming in, not enough energy leaving uh, the earth, and that's heating everything up. We are going to go for a geo, um, a, a global solution. What do you call it? Geoengineering solution where you right now the most obvious one is throwing up a lot of sulfur dioxide into yeah. the atmosphere and i feel like that's like a hundred percent what we're going to do well, no matter yeah. what you say that it's a bad idea it's just like well it's a solution and it's cheaper than the other ones and it addresses all the problems at once yeah what do you think will happen once we do that once we definitely definitely do that i think the the unforeseen consequences of that decision are going to be as bad as the problem that we're trying to solve and then we'll be stuck trying to figure out what to do next and that's Mm -hmm. the story of us in a nutshell you know like that's what we're trying to that's what we're going to do i i mean i agree with you i think that we are going to go for this kind of moonshot there will be a time we will eventually go for some moonshot technological fix and it doesn't does not even have to be the cheapest one because something that i learned to report in this book is a lot of times it's there are cheaper options that get overlooked because they're cheap. Like in Bangladesh, um, I do talk about some solutions in this book. And one of them is a, is a process called tidal river management um, that works with the natural sediment flow of the river systems there and to, to allow the rivers to flood, to give space to the rivers. Now, it's important to remember that this cordon approach, the embankments in Bangladesh, they come from the Netherlands. Okay, this was this was a Dutch idea that had been even the word the word called polder, which is the word used to describe all these little islands that are created. They're basically embankments ring around the land. Outside the embankment is a river. Inside is the land where people farm and live. And that inside place is called a polder. Polder is a Dutch word, and so this, it's when I got to Bangladesh, I had heard this word used so many times, so just in regular conversation that I assumed it was a Bangla word. Like I hadn't heard it before. 
uh, it's only later that I realized, no, it's actually a Dutch word that has just become so prominent here because of the way the Dutch have had such a heavy hand in the way this landscape now works. Yeah, it's called the Netherlands because it's not land. It's it's all reclaimed <laughs> land. Exactly. And but so they've imported this idea, this 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 method of managing this system, right, from the Netherlands to Bangladesh. But the, the Netherlands don't deal with the sediment load that Bangladesh has. It's a completely different hydro, hydrographic and hydrologic and uh, geologic system, right? That the sediment load that comes off of the Himalaya and the, and the whole Brahmaputra and Ganga system is huge. There's nothing like the like the Dutch are used to dealing with. So their solution to, to the problem in, in, in Bangladesh was just like put, trying to you know to ram a square a square peg into a round hole. Mm. Um, now people there are waking up to this reality. They have been for some time, and uh, they've got this other idea they call tidal river management or TRM. And what it does is it allows the rivers to flood like they would naturally in certain places. Like you move a bunch of people out of an area, you create a basin where the, you allow the river to flood into that basin. That sediment gets rather than building up in the in the river where it just increases the water table and makes for more floods. That sediment spills into that basin, builds the basin up. And now you have land that is above the sea level and it's super nutrient rich because the silt is, you know, basically natural fertilizer. And then once it get, once that basin gets filled, you wall it off, you let the people move back onto it and farm it again and you move the basin down river a little bit. So you keep kind of creating these spaces along the way um, where you can allow the river to, to flood naturally. So and, you're, what you were saying, that's cheaper than the current option, yeah, which is... Yeah, that's bringing me back there. Yeah, got in a bit of a thing. So um, it's cheaper. It's really cheap. All you, all you really have to do is kick off some farmers and pay them enough money that they feel like they'll go live somewhere else for a short time um, while this thing, while this basin builds up. Uh, people who have been involved in it tell me that it's a, it's a, the problem is not technologic or, you know, or like engineering. The problem they have there is, is a sociologic problem. And an economic problem because the reality is the government gets so much money from foreign aid groups, you know, the, the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and, and USAID. They love big tech, glitzy techno infrastructural solutions because they bring in tons and tons of money. And Bangladesh mm-hmm. is a, a country that really struggles with corruption, like every country does, including the U.S., um, no, no, Bangladesh and, is super special on the corruption front. It's, yeah, okay. It's I, I was trying to be soft about it. I was trying to be no, a little no. bit, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and so when you you got a billion dollars coming in to build a wall somewhere or something, well, every step along the way, someone shaves a little bit off of that until you get down to this wall being built. And it's like, I've talked to people who say, I've seen walls that just stop. Like a, a, an embankment that's supposed to be a ring around a, a village, and it, the wall just stops at one point. And the person, there's a person living where that wall has stopped, you know, just near there. And I asked, why has that wall not been completed to like actually keep the water out? And they said, well, yeah, I guess they just, the workers just left. They just, they ran out of money or something. And yeah. it's just like, that's what happens. So, the, so there's an incentive to get these big tech, big fixes in because they bring in money, little things like TRM that don't take a lot of money, but nobody wants to do that because there's no way you can't make a buck off of it. You can't, you can't like skim off the top of that. What do you think about the current um, way that people that that climate activists are currently saying uh, that the only way we're we're locked into a a dramatically bad climate uh, problem? We know it's happening. We're going to miss the 1.5 C target. It's going to happen. But the only way to combat this is with optimism. Right. That it, it, that that and, and this is a very common viewpoint. It's like, well, you know, we missed all of our targets and we said it was going to be catastrophic. And then The New York Times runs this thing is like, well, it's a catastrophe, but it's not as bad as you think. Yeah. And if you 
can we talk about the climate crisis in a way that's optimistic or can we just, in my opinion, be a little real about what's coming down the pipeline? So I'm super torn on this and like some background on me, you know, I, I worked as an editor for a magazine called Yes! Exclamation point. Oh yeah, right. Based, uh -huh. based out of Seattle. Mm -hmm. I was a senior editor mm -hmm. there for several years. I covered climate change and environmental justice and mm -hmm. Yes! is a progressive news organization that focuses on solutions journalism. And so every story that I wrote or edited while I was there, you know, was a solution story about how we're going to fix this thing. And their bent is like progressive news with a positive spin, you know, mm -hmm. the sense being that, you know, we're not going to bury people in doom and gloom. We're going to give them a way out. The idea, give them a way out. We're going to, everyone's going to go there and that's how we're going to get out of this thing. Mm -hmm. I did this years ago. Now you see solutions journalism is becoming a much more prominent, uh, for prominent in the media landscape, I think even the Washington Post has a whole solutions, you know, climate solutions vertical. Um, you, see, you know, Grist is a whole solutions thing. I mean, everywhere you go now, people are doing the climate solutions bet. And the idea is that, right, we're not, we're going to get out of the doom and gloom. We're going to solve this problem together. I'm torn on that, you know, and that's the point of my book is it's kind of, that's the ethos this book is coming from. It's like, as someone who's worked in the solution space for a long time and still continues to write solutions, I just got an assignment yesterday for another solution story. Um, I feel like I appreciate the solutions and I do think they're valuable and I do think that we need to be presenting them and, and dissecting them. My hesitancy is that I understand how the media works and how these solutions often get presented. You know, even though we say we're going to present the solution and we're going to really analyze the solution and show the downsides, we're not just going to present it as a cure-all. The reality is when it comes to like an 800 word article where four different editors want to get their take on it and you need to be punchy and snappy and leave your, your readership with a nice little glimmer of hope. At the end of the day, it's like, here's a horrible thing that's happening. And then there's a two paragraphs at the end that say, here's a possible solution. And here's a person who says mm -hmm. it's a great idea. And here's a little hedge at the end, but it might not be a silver bullet. And then mm -hmm. end story, you know, and it's yeah, and yeah. every climate story ever outlined absolutely. by you. Yeah. And yeah, right. And it's not really, I don't think that is really helping us a whole lot. I mean, then you look around every time the Mississippi floods and all these people get washed away or, or, mm -hmm. or a hurricane hits Florida or some, the Gulf coast or something or fires and that, that Sandy hurricane friggin' Sandy, like that, that's when people actually start to move. That's when things mm -hmm. really start to happen It's when people are faced with the very real yeah. implication. And it's, you know, I think for a long time, Americans have been able to get out of this. You know, we look at Bangladesh, we say, oh, those people, they're so poor and miserable because, you know, they live on a delta and they're flooding. And it's, that's true. But we've been able to just kind of push it to the side and forget about it. And just, you know, mm -hmm. they don't look like us. They don't talk like us. They're dealing with problems that won't affect us. Well, now Americans are realizing that, whoa, this problem that we really created is going to come back and it's going to hit us just as hard as everybody else. I kind of think that that might do more to solve this problem in the long term than just coming up with these yeah. weak solutions. Yeah, you know, it's sort of, I, I tend to agree with you on this from the perspective of when I was writing The Vortex, the idea was, look, even though that storm wasn't probably caused by climate change, it was a little bit earlier to say like a cyclone was caused by climate change, it created all these downstream effects including a revolution, including a genocide. And it was terrible. It was huge human fallout. But at the end of the day, things happened. Like history happened. People in the crisis said, okay, I actually have to do something right now to change where I live, to fight that brutal government, to you know fight for equality or whatever it is that they were doing at that moment. The problems became so critically clear because they were so acute that the solutions 
naturally occurred, right? Mm -hmm. They weren't pretty by any yeah. stretch of the imagination. They were actually quite terrible, but the adaptation is forced. It's not something that you could think out in advance. It happened and, and uh, you know, what the future of, our, of our humanity will look like. Personally, I'm sort of a more of a dark ecology guy. I don't know if you've run, run across this, um, this philosophy, but it's basically, we're doomed. <laughs> we are on the way to doomed. And once you accept that, then you have to decide, well, how are we going to live right now? Yeah. And, and that, that actually leads to potentially um, ways to adapt, actually, ways to sort of say that we are going to do things. And, and yeah, things are probably going to fall apart. But how do you live knowing that things are going to fall apart? That's where I am. I think that's, that's a super fascinating. And I think people kind of talk about that and, you know, like poo-poo the idea, right? Because it's so dismal and you can't accept it. But then you look around at what the our world leaders are or are not doing to remedy the situation. And, it's, and you really kind of feel like that's that might just be it. But you said something in that mix that I think is so important in this conversation. The, the idea about reacting to like we're gonna we're gonna adapt to the problem, not not think ahead. We're gonna adapt to the crises as they unfold, like after they unfold. Well, mm -hmm. by definition, like that's what adaptation is, right? Like mm -hmm. adaptation. I mean, like you know, Darwin style adaptation is environments change, or and or you arrive in this situation and you react over time, mm -hmm. generations to the situation. You don't think ahead. So what we're trying to do now with climate adaptation is like such a novel idea, really like this thinking, we're trying to think deep into the future, generations down the line in a, in, in a future that we can't even pin down because there are so many uncertainties and we don't, you know, we're running all these computer models um, that are helping us to imagine like millions of possible futures, but we don't really know which one we're going to get. And so right. we're trying to react to things that haven't happened yet. And that's really not adaptation. Like lizards didn't, didn't just like see a, like a drought coming and then like grow a thick skin to keep their moisture in. Right. Like it was hot and then a bunch of them died and the ones that didn't die happened to have a thick skin. And then those are the ones that we now have lizards. So I don't know. I think, uh, I think, yeah, there's going to be a lot of attempts to solve this thing. We're going to see a lot of rooftop gardens, you know, that do nothing. And we're going to see some huge technological solutions that fail horribly. And out of all of that attempt, what we're probably going to end up doing is changing the way we live and not living in places like the middle of the desert where it's not a great sustainable place to live and not living right on the coast anymore. And if we do live on the coast, um, doing so in a way that, you know, that acknowledges and is respectful of the environment that, that we're a part of there. Thanks for that summary. I think that's awesome. Where can people find out more about your book, find out more about you? Uh, what, what, where, where, where can we get Over the Seawall? Over the Seawall is available in all of your local bookshops and online, Amazon, bookshop.com. <laughs> um, yeah. Barnes and Noble. Um, you can find uh, links to that on my website, which is stephenrobertmiller.com. Stephen with a PH. Um, follow me also on Twitter. It's by line SR Miller. Um, and yeah. And I'll put links to some of, to a lot of that stuff down in the show notes. So you will be able to find uh, Stephen's work and contemplate uh, whether you want to build a seawall in your local community. <laughs> I got plans in there. There's the schematics for you. <laughs> Uh, all right. From Scott Carney, Investigates in Denver, Colorado, you were listening to us. Thanks. Thanks, Scott.